Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Matthew Ronay. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas is presenting Matthew Ronay, The Crack, the Swell, an Earth, an Ode, through January 15th, 2023. The exhibition features a nearly 24-foot-long sculpture of the same title. The sculpture functions as both an introduction to Ronay's exploration of surrealism, abstraction, representation, and arts history, and also as a summary of the last decade of his work. The exhibition was curated by Lee Arnold and is accompanied by an excellent catalog published by the Nasher and Gregory R. Miller. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 55 bucks. Ronay's work has been featured in solo shows at the Blaffer Art Gallery in Houston and at the Perez Art Museum, Miami. He's also been included in group shows at the Dallas Museum of Art, the North Carolina Museum of Art, the Williams College Museum of Art, and more. On the second segment, Jay Dosko. But first, Matthew Ronay, after the break. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Picasso cut papers. Devoted to a little-known yet foundational aspect of Pablo Picasso's practice, Picasso cut papers spans the artist's full career, with many of the nearly 100 works on display for the first time. Showing a new side of a familiar artist, the exhibition features some of Picasso's most whimsical and intriguing works made on paper and in paper, alongside a select group of sculptures in sheet metal. Picasso cut paper is on view at the Hammer Museum through December 31st, 2022. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet, Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960. This is the first major museum exhibition to investigate the early work of one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. The exhibition tells the overlooked story of Lichtenstein's early career and establishes a deeper understanding of post-war American art. The landmark exhibition features loans from museums and private collections, presenting about 90 works from the artist's fruitful formative years. Many of the paintings, drawings, sculptures, and prints will be on public view for the first time. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, examines the period before the dot, that is, Lichtenstein's signature use of Bende dots in his pop paintings. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948-1960, is co-organized by the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Matthew Ronay, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. The exhibition at the Nasher, I, I don't want to say it's unusual because I don't think that's quite right, but 
it's certainly conceptual in that it's kind of a total work of art joining scale. The work is 24 feet long to staircase. A, a visitor approaches it from above to viewpoint to object and, and so on. So maybe given that element of approach, maybe we should start by my asking you to describe your concept of the installation and the experience of the work that you want the viewer to have, you know, from first sight onward. Well, when I was offered the opportunity to make this exhibition, one of the things that I kind of immediately realized was that I wanted to make a work that had extreme horizontality. And I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to make a work that was like that or what what I needed to do to prepare myself for that. But when I visited the Nasher to give a lecture and look at the space, when I was walking down the stairs, I had this feeling of a kind of theatricality of the space in which the room is the stage and the framing of the room is the proscenium and and so on and so forth. I immediately kind of realized that I wanted to have a kind of narrative-ish work that And in order to have a narrative-ish sculpture, I thought it would be interesting to investigate horizontality. And so basically, in the year leading up to when the exhibition was originally supposed to open, or years actually, I began to draw in my sketchbooks horizontally. And so it actually took me a really long time to learn how to draw with such extreme horizontality. And then I began to also study works that also functioned with horizontality. So a lot of Japanese screens, a lot of works that were made on scrolls. And then I also bent my eye a little bit to some of the staples of Renaissance composition and kind of tried to train myself to think how you can make a sculpture have direction and point and do these things and and how the overall composition can have some sort of coherence, but also when you're standing back and seeing it from a distance, it also has can be compelling. So let's kind of set that stage for the viewer a little bit. So the sculpture is 24 feet long. It's going to be on 40 inch high. I don't know, is podium the right word? Platform? Pedi- pedestal. Pedestal? I mean, yeah. And the sculpture itself, I don't know how tall it is. It's probably at its tallest about 48 inches or 40, 43 inches or something. And so the viewer's first view is going to be from above, descending toward it. One, was that attractive or something and something you wanted to play with? And two, you know, once upon a time, uh, it's been some years, but once upon a time you installed, you know, pretty much everything on the floor, you know, plinthless you know, did that inform, did that experience of of making and installing inform how you knew people would would approach this work? Definitely. And I I think my initial concept for the Nasher was to have a series of graduating pedestals, meaning like I was was going to have three pedestals that were quite large, the first one being the smallest and the last one and the farthest away from the viewer being the highest. And I kind of wanted to almost superimpose three sculptures on top of each other. And in order to prepare for the Nasher, I actually experimented with a lot of these concepts and different shows that I made in different places. And I kind of, to kind of train myself for how to make one work that was very long and would take a long period of time, but also to see how I could learn to connect 
parts of the sculptures and and stuff like that. And so I had, I had originally planned on having the room where the the works are mimic the stairs so that those graduated pedestals would mimic the the kind of feeling of the stairs and so many things happened mainly the pandemic and and at a certain point during the pandemic I actually abandoned the kind of idea of doing something grandiose and ambitious it just didn't I kind of folded into myself and started to make a lot smaller works in you know at the very beginning of the pandemic and then eventually reconnected with the idea of this horizontal sculpture and when I reconnected to it I wanted to have it be a singular object and so what's nice about this space is that you you see the room from so far away the reason I put it on a pedestal wasn't so much to do with the site specificity of the Nasher but just in the recent years I've realized that the works that I make are better experienced more closer to your eye level so that you can actually get close and see all the different textures. And part of my, part of that realization was just that I make my works at tabletop height and I usually view them while I'm sitting. And so I realized I needed to fix the position of the viewer to the sculpture so that you didn't have a foreshortened view of the object as you would if you're standing up and seeing something on the floor. You mentioned that you kind of warmed up for this piece. And in 2021, you made at least three horizontal sculptures that are kind of five or six feet in length, one called Filterer, one called Pluralizer, and one called a word I have no chance of saying, Reinstantian help. Uh, Reinstantiationizer. I think. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I invented the word, so it's reinstantiation is the word, and then izer reinstantiationizer. Yeah, it's a horiz- it's a horizontal word. <laughs> yes, it is a horizontal <laughs> word. You're right. So, in those three works, which I, I'm, I guess I'm presuming were the three warm up works, what did you learn? I mean, they're a quarter the length of of what the piece at the Nasher is, but still. right. For me, yeah, I also, in 2020, I made a show in Shanghai that also featured some some horizontal works. And so what basically what happened was when I initially began to draw horizontally, I should clarify, all my works start as drawings. And so in order to train to make the sculpture, I had to train to draw the sculpture first. And when I began to draw horizontally, the first thing I did was just to get bigger sketchbooks so that I had bigger space. And then what I noticed was that when I drew horizontally, often what I did was fill the space with ornamentation. And I, I do so love ornamentation, but it, it can sometimes leave me a little bit feeling empty, even though I love to do it so much. And so I thought, well, this is not working. I need to I need to try to find a different way to create horizontality. And so one of the things that I then began to do was instead of drawing an entire sculpture in one sitting, I would edit my drawings and then position them either at first by memory. So I would say like, oh, these, these, there's a a piece in the, in the same show that you were mentioning with reinstantiationizer. Uh, There's a piece called pluralizer and pluralizer was made from four sculpture from four drawings of four sculptures that I in my that I held in my mind and then drew. And so from there what I realized was that 
I didn't want to risk working for months on a work that I drew from memory that maybe the parts could be shifted or whatever. And so what I began to do, instead of drawing them by hand, I would take the edits of the amount of sculptures that I wanted to composite to make a sculpture. And I used Photoshop to kind of figure out the scale and to figure out which parts could fit together with, with which with the other parts. The way that I used these other exhibitions to train for the Nasher was to kind of hone my chops on how to actually get the parts of the sculptures to join. And so in, in a normal sculpture of mine, I do that by using the bandsaw and some other tools and then sometimes like free sculpting parts, two pieces of wood to fit together. But there's a whole different kind of technical process to get all these parts to, to fit. And so I was able to kind of practice that for a show I made at Casey Kaplan in 2021. And then from there, it also gave me the opportunity to see how I could hold my attention for a longer amount of time. So the Nasher work took, I think, eight months. And so it, it was also, I also needed to learn to be patient and to hold my attention into one piece and not kind of become distracted. Well, one of the things about, say, Filterer that interests me as, 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 as kind of prep for the Nasher project is that, you know, I get how doing a six-foot-long-ish, five-foot-long-ish horizontal sculpture, you know, helps you solve some issues. But the visual language in the two works is pretty substantially different. You know, you're not reprising moves, if you will. So, for example, for me and apologizing, you know, I, I, in preparation to talk to you again, I listened to um, our 2016 show at which I art, art history nerded out pretty good, I'm afraid. Um, I <laughs> Congratulations. Even, I, I even made an unforgivable Joseph, but really bad Joseph Boyd's joke. Awesome. But, <laughs> but, you know, Filter, you know, is kind of based on an early 1950s David Smith-like drawing into sculpture armature. Mm -hmm. And in the Nasher work, you know, all of that David Smithiness is gone. I, my, my, my sense is that they helped you think through one issue while not, you know, while allowing you the space to explore other visual ideas and engagements with, with the ultimate work. Yeah, I mean, Filter has a lot of air in it. It's almost like a, a system of pipes or, or pathways. And that's, that was the structure with which I joined the other the sculptures together and I think in that same show like I also used and one piece called the same piece called pluralizer I used kind of the a wall or a more architectural solution in order to join works and I and then I think there's another work with which I then actually just join the parts that there's no there's no system that joins the parts the parts join to themselves and so that's the that is the kind of strategy or way that I that I settled upon for the Nasher, which is that the drawings from which I made the sculpture became itself. Those parts actually touch each other, and so it's it's a little bit of a different sculpt. It's it's a little bit more difficult sculpturally, I think, technically, to me. In her essay in the exhibition catalog introducing the sculpture, Nasher curator Lee Arnold emphasizes repeatedly that you're interested in presenting, quote, a series of objects as a kind of ordered procession. And she uses that word procession over and over again. And it's a really good word because as I spent time, you know, so we're, we're talking before the show's been installed, as I spent time 
with images related to the show. I was like, yep, that's how it works. That's how, that's what it looks like is procession, which is an idea or a word with rich kind of capital C Catholic associations or, or religious ceremony or even monarchical ceremony related associations is procession something you're interested in or, or, or we're motivated by. One of the things that is a little bit of a conundrum about my practice is that since it begins from a strategy of automatic conjuring, I always find myself trying to apply logic or order to that result. So, you know, I, I don't judge my drawings or any of the practice I do when it's automatic. I just draw and draw and draw and don't, I don't, you know, there's really no big risk in drawing because you can turn the page or do whatever you need to do to, if you don't like what you're doing. But then what you're left with sometimes is, is a real, as a real knotted and tangled jumble of symbols and ideas and emotions and feelings and all these things. And so for me, what I use that for is to kind of comprehend what it is, which leads me to do research and to kind of learn about all sorts of different subject matters. And so I've always been drawn to arranging the exhibitions with some sort of implied order so that in some way it's, I want to encourage people to, to comprehend it with some sort of rigor. So it's not just looking and kind and trying to understand, you know, how you feel or what you think of when you see the objects, but also how those objects relate to each other. That for me has always been a really fun exercise is how to take a whole bunch of random and disparate images or symbols and to organize your associations so that you're not just left with like some sort of nonsense that's floating in the sky. And so that's just something that I've always been interested in. And so that's manifested in a lot of different ways. Sometimes I, I've actually organized sculptures, you know, from end to end on a long plinth or, or I've also in the past, in the very beginning, made sculptures that also were arranged in a line that touched like this. But I think it's always been exciting to me to, when editing an exhibition, to see the connections between all the different sculptures. And so it seems natural to me to have settled on this kind of masterwork for the Nasher in which now it's just one object. It's not the, I don't just settle for the illusion of how the sculptures connect conceptually. I actually connected them. So in terms of Catholicism and this kinds of thing, there is a deep mystical process in the way that I work. And so just the, you know, the sounds of the tools and the, all the, all the things that are involved in working for me also help center me as a person. And so I have a kind of a rigorous practice. I work, you know, rigorous hours and I, and I try to stay really focused because it makes me feel better. And so I, I think, I mean, I'm not directly connected to Catholicism in any way, but I but I do love the pageantry of it. And I, and I do think that there's, you know, the drama of it can be compelling. And I think, I think in terms of just procession, I do appreciate the kind of activity, the mystical activity of having a procession or, or witnessing, you know, the order of things passing. For me, there's a, a left to right or right to left 
narrative, non-story driven series of things going on, both in The Crack, The Swell, and Earth, and Ode, the Nasher work, and in lots of your other work. And it's a way of making sculptures that suggests the possibility of relationships between the shapes, the moves in individual works of yours without insisting upon them. Exactly. And I, I think we, I do that also, we do that with color and height. Like, like sometimes the sculptures will be arranged according to height. And then also the palette of a show may go from like warm to cool or, you know, we're, we're, I'm always trying to create some sort of like hidden logic just to, I think it's in a way I feel like it can be generous because it it implies you know that you can try to like comprehend it as like one whole work uh, which feels richer to me than maybe just looking at one work and then looking at another and another and just kind of moving on and cleansing the palette I've I've always kind of gone for the idea that it's more complicated than just one work yeah, because you can you can find I don't I don't know if relationships is the right word, but you can find affinities between a sculptural move three quarters of the way to the right and you know one eighth of the way to the left, you know across the work. That'll make more sense if listeners You're, look at the yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's dive into the crack, the swell, and earth and ode itself. In not quite the middle of the sculpture, in fact, quite intentionally, I suspect, not the middle of the sculpture. There's a kind of figure or, or near figure that seems to have lungs. It seems to have a neck and shoulders and hair, all of it abstracted. To me, it seems, you know, and again, I'm working off a JPEG here because the work has not been installed yet, but, but it seems to hold together, you know, that, that pseudo figure or semi figure seems to hold together the entire sculpture. So is it person referencing? Is it intended as an anchor or pivot? Absolutely. I mean, it's in my mind, it's a kind of meditating figure. And so it's supposed to have a kind of stasis at the center of this incredible chaos. And I feel like that's, that is the struggle of being alive. Like, how do you manage to keep yourself centered in a world filled with as much chaos as we are experiencing? And so I think on, on that level, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't want it to be overt, but I think that I allowed myself to go into a slightly more figurative area than normal with the idea that it would a viewer may then place themselves at the center of the work as well. Although I do think there's a ton of the human body in a Absolutely. lot of your work. Well, yeah, true. I think it's sometimes it can be overt in this piece, which is, makes me uncomfortable, but it, it's, it is what I... What I didn't know that I wanted to do that I did. So, and, and, and this is more of a body, like, like in this case, it's an, it's an, it's nearly an entire torso. And in others of your work, it's a phallus or a suggestion of breasts, which is here too, you know, in different parts of this sculpture, you know, for all of the happy ordered chaos going in, going on in your work, the body is, is not always there, but is very often there in a way that is, you know, so whenever there are like body parts that are disconnected in a work of 22nd, I'm sorry, 21st century sculpture, we tend to immediately, I think, think of like Hans Bellmer or Giacometti. And in your work, that violence is absent. In your work, they're just there to be riffed on. You know, there's a little thing sticking out of, a, out of the sculpture in a straight line that 
you know, suggests an erect phallus and it's playful and fun rather than threatening and violent or post-violent. I, I mean, I, it's funny that you say it that way because I, I realize that I, I kind of think of it in, the op- in opposite terms. And, I, and lately I'm wondering, like, why am I always thinking in terms of death or disease or de- uh, degradation? So it's, it's interesting to hear you think, think of them as just kind of being there announcing their presence without being connected to violence or being ripped or, or, or some of these things. It's interesting to hear you say that. And I, I've had conversations with other people recently that reminded me that I, that I sometimes discount the joy in, in my work and that I'm more tempted to talk about it in terms of something serious or, you know, heavy when in fact there is so much joy in the work. It's interesting to me that it, I think it's my training. I mean, I think that we're kind of trained to think that artworks need to be heavy and to deal with, you know, darkness. I mean, obviously they need to deal with both sides, but I, it's so much seems so much easier for me as a habit to talk about the dark side than the light side. You're the one who chose to get your MFA at Yale. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, you know, now that I think about it, one of the ways that, okay, so we're taught that right angles are serious and strong male, all, all, all those things. And, you know, with a couple of exceptions across, say, the last five or six years of your oeuvre, you have pretty much avoided the heck out of right angles. So the two exceptions that I can think of or found a work from 2018 called Exception, <laughs> Exception, Acoustic Encoder, and a work from 2019 called Control Column, Wilt's Dyad. But, but otherwise, you know, when there are places in sculptures, including in The Crack, The Swell, An Earth, An Ode, where there are places where you could have a right angle, there are lots of places where you just round it. So at the risk of, of kind of being cheeky, why do you dislike right angles? I mean, I'm a real architecture fan. I really especially love fantasy architecture. And, and as a young person, I, I actually worked as a model maker for an architect. And I spent a lot of time measuring and using scale rulers and 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 in early, also in early works, like I riffed a lot on that kind of Art Schwager use of formica and you know using carpentry and things like this. And so, I think that I, as I shifted further into abstraction, I just stopped using the table saw and other other things like that cut at you know that make straight lines. And so I'm mostly, you know, drawing freehand and I'm not using rulers or, or even when I make architectural illusions, I, I prefer to have architecture that, you know, that's almost like, like Sienese painting style where like maybe the perspectives don't line up because when I'm drawing, I don't, I don't always know how to make things look perfect. And then I'm very faithful to the drawing. So I, I build things with broken perspective and stuff like that. And I guess I, I guess it's not so much that I I don't like them. It's that I've found that what's most engaging for me sculpturally is to be faithful to the, the handmade line. And so I prefer to have things be bumpy and to be like, maybe they, maybe they suggest a straight line, but they aren't a straight line. And so I, for me, that visually is more fun to look at and, and, and in engaging. In the Nasher work, the crack, the swell, and earth, and ode. 
there are two places where there are right angles and they're both there, I think, because you are riffing on the work of another sculptor. The clearest example, for me anyway, is over at the far left of the sculpture where you have borrowed a form from Henri Matisse's 1908 decorative figure, which is indeed, which is, you know, an addition of 10, and one of the 10 is in the Nasher collection. It's a figure on kind of the far left of the object. The Matisse is a bronze of a woman sitting on and leaning on um, a, a block with much of her weight on one arm and her other arm. And then her other arm is kind of creating a serpentine shape with her hand between her legs. And like a whole lot of that is in your sculpture minus the cross legs. What about that Matisse or that shape or that form interested you? It's funny because it's the only thing in the sculpture that I would say is a riff on some something else. And it's not for me, it's not Matisse. It's a it's a, a Giovanni de Almagna. He's a Renaissance painter. He made up a, a, a big like polychrome altar it's not a sculpture it's a painting with he works with some with a with a partner and it was a it was a tiny little part of this altar piece that was in a book about Bellini and so it's a Jesus figure to me not a a lady to me it wasn't so much the interest that it was Jesus figure but that it was that there was like care in which this figure was being held up by these other hands and that they don't really have a body, that their body is missing. So they're, they're not actually terrestrial. It's more of a metaphysical being than it is a terrestrial being. But it is true that they are leaning on a column and it is an architectural reference and a, and a right angle. And the actual painting, it's fabric. It's not, I don't think it's a column. In the book, actually, if you look in the book, there's an image of the, of the piece the the painting it's i think it's in robert's essay so another way or another place in which we're used to seeing kind of straight lines that you avoid them is you love to frame things within an artwork to provide kind of a, an, an outline or a cradle or a an enclosed space for stuff within a sculpture so like there's, you know, one of my favorite examples is a work called Thermo Nasty from, from 2019. But you do it here, as you often do, repeatedly across the sculpture, including um, in, the, in, the, in the horizontal work at the Nasher at the very far right, where you have kind of like a, a, a hokusai wave like <laughs> shape. <laughs> awesome. With a, yeah, I don't know if you meant it to be that, but. You know, I once, mean, I love Hokusai, but once anyway. The, once, once I started thinking of it that way, I couldn't stop. <laughs> you know, with kind of a little uh, doohickey sitting, sitting within it and framed by it. This is all a very long way of asking, why do you like to frame objects within your sculptures? I think it creates an intimacy. And it's, you know, in the, in the example that you're giving, I always thought of that as a wound. And that it's like, you know, an embryo that's like sitting within this kind of like, you know, bloody cave. I mean, I think I do it because I like and I'm drawn to the feeling that things are touching or that they might touch. I think it's like one of the main qualities of the sculptures that I make is that it is that things touch or they're about to touch and that there's a there's an intimacy there that I think 
is fun and absorbing, you know? And so I think that's part of the reason. And then maybe sometimes it's also a technical or a formal trope so that it's like, you know, helps things stand up or gives them framing or something like that, but I'm not sure. And then on the third thing that I'm thinking is that it's also like a a drawing quirk of mine that it's, I might be placing things within a, you know, a composition or something. And when we talked in 2016 and we talked in that conversation about some things I'm leaving alone here, such as your drawing practice and color and color. When we talked back then, you talked a little bit about how one of your go-to moves was stacking things kind of like cairns on a, on a trail. And you, 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 you mused on that kind of within the context of a, of a broad human history. And I think that in the six years since we talked, you know, that's remained in your toolbox including in this work at the Nasher, which has a, a kind of a, a princess in the pea passage where there are kind of four or five blobular forms with kind of a potato-shaped-ish form under them. But I think you stack things a little less than you used to, and maybe not so much in the Nasher work, but I think in lots of other works, like a work called The Pearl from 2020 or Presenium mutation from four years before that, from 2016, you often have layers with things in the middle. So maybe less stacking and more layering. And, and, and you know, stacking is building vertically and layering allows maybe for the same idea done horizontally. Do you think that your use of stacking and building vertically and putting similar shapes together has changed in the last, you know, decade, half decade? Probably. I mean, I think because I noticed that it was something that I was kind of leaning on in the in the work in the Nasher work, there is a stack. And it for me, it's a it's a weight on a head. That bottom shape is a head with its tongue sticking out and the beads are tears coming from the eye holes. And I think for this work, there was a heaviness that I was feeling when I created this work. And I think that sometimes What's nice about stacking in this sense is that it cre- it actually you're able to heighten the illusion of the material so that it actually feels heavy. And I think maybe it's not so much that I abandoned the stacking as it is that I just kind of grew weary to use it too much. I think I, I, I think I've also gotten some other attributes that I that I enjoy that are wispy where I'm using metal a little bit more or I'm using other techniques to make the wood look softer. And maybe I've gone away from the kind of illusion of trying to create the illusion in the works that, that they actually have weight. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it in those terms. I think initially in 2016 around there, I had just discovered how to, you know, create, to cut apart like large stacks of wood with the bandsaw and have them have the pieces fit back together. And so I did that a lot because it was really new to me. And I think like one of the things that I, about my practice is that I'm, I'm always trying to figure ways out to trick myself into creating new, you know, to expand the visual language. And so I do that a lot of times by altering the implements that I use for drawing, like switching to charcoal or, or stopping to draw in books and draw on paper on the wall or draw with a pen or use watercolor or do, you know, just do something to get, to get myself out of the rut. I'm always scared of falling into a rut or enjoying too much certain kinds of techniques or ideas or things that I'm 
that I'm drawn to. And so I'm, I've tried to force myself to change the language. And so perhaps I just like got tired of drawing these kinds of like stacks of things because it was too easy. And then I, and then I just kind of walked away from it. That's what I'm guessing. There's a couple of pieces in the Nasher and there's a couple of parts of the main piece where there were drawings made by erasing or some other technique. And so it's like these, I try to take myself out of just making contour drawings. And so when you use contour drawing, like to draw a stack of things is kind of easy because you're just adding like one thing on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next. There, there is kind of a uh, newish stacking move at the left of the big piece at the Nasher. It's actually it's to the left of the sculpture, but just to the right of what I'm going to continue to think of as your 1908 Matisse-like form. <laughs> and it's these tooth shapes that are stacked, but that have, but you know, they're kind of on a, on a, on, on a shelf on a series of shelves. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, that's a new way of... Stacking. Stacking. Yeah. The, you're talking about the parts that have the little red, like, string kind of that's coming out of it? Yeah. That whole part of the sculpture I think of as... And the, it, and the part that's right next to it, too, that looks like it's radiating. As I, I always thought of that part of the sculpture as the part of it that's excreting. So I think of those as butts, actually. <laughs> And then the piece next to it also has like a kind of like fecal moment where there's like something oozing out of that like rectilinear box kind of thing. This is horrible, but it, it vaguely reminds me of something somewhere between Max Ernst and Louise Bourgeois. Why is that horrible? Those are great artists. But they aren't alike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they yeah. aren't playing on the same field mostly. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But there is a, a certain kind of we've learned the lessons of surrealism and we've moved on. I guess maybe that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> I mean, I still love surrealism, even if it's not. I no, obviously, I guess it is. it's very much in the work. I mean, there's no reason we shouldn't still love surrealism, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's still valuable. I have a couple other works I'd like to ask you about that don't inform the Nasher work. One is a 2020 sculpture called Bonds. And it's kind of an aqua green, aqua blue joining through a, a band kind of, of of two leg-like figures. One of the legs appears to be in a high heel. Is that a sculpture informed by a simple exploration of form or is there another jumping off point there? I mean, it's a, I, I research and love fetish. And so I, have a lot of collections of kind of erotic art and, and also like to read uh, from a kind of like a Freudian perspective. I have a couple of books like that were made in the fifties or sixties that kind of describe how people arrive at fetish, whether it's, you know, boots or underwear or high heels or rubber or whatever it is. These things that I, I just really love, like, there's a reprint of this magazine called Bazaar Magazine. And, and I, I just love the feet and I love the heels. And I like, the, you know, like in, the, in some of those drawings, like the way that the, way that the, the top of the foot is drawn. And I, and I just thought so much, like, I just want to do this. And then I also like the kind of rope play or bondage or these kinds of things. There's something that... Like if you ever saw that Temple Graydon documentary that, or I guess it's like a film that they made on HBO, but she, 
she did a bunch of research with animals and how to make animals feel more calm, specifically, I guess, cows when they were on the way to the slaughter and that, that they like to be hugged or pressed or like, like a weighted blanket kind of feeling. And so I thought, like for that work, I was really drawn to the idea that the two things are like roped together and that they're kind of bonded together in a way. I mean, it's all very loose. It's not, it's the, the sculpture isn't an illustration of an idea. It's, it's something that my subconscious created, but. I'll add one more association, something else in art's history that the, the sculpture points me toward. And that's one of the greatest of all Joanne Callis photographs, a 1976-77 work called Hands on Ankles. Um, huh. And is it, I, I don't know the photographs. It's a, it's a picture that, you know, I don't know if it's Callis's first major work, but it's close. And it's, um, it show, and we'll have an image on manpodcast.com. It shows a woman standing in slightly higher than kitten heels, standing on a chair. And a man's hands are coming through the back of the chair, holding her ankles. And so a lot of the elements in that photo heels, legs, the way the, his four fingers wrap around her lower leg and the way that the four light blue bands in your sculpture, you know, wrap around the, the, the central forms. It's, it's really, I mean, I, you know, I think Callis would tell you she's interested in the same things you're interested in. Right. I mean, or, or was in 76, 77. I mean, I, you know, I think that that's, you know, Callis was on the show in, 2014. We'll have a link to it. And, you know, I, I, I we, we talked about kind of the same soup. And so I think she's, I, th I think y'all are dancing on the same floor. Another kind of work and kind of move that you had for a while in the mid 2010s that I wanted to talk about was, I think like around 2015, 16, 17, there were a lot of Yoyoi Kusama references in the work, lots of black dots on rounded and colored forms. And then I think that move evolves into something else. So first off, you know, is, was that an intentional Kusama riff? No, it's not. But I mean, obviously, I, you know, know the work. And, and I, think, I think for me, one of the things that I'm drawn to when working is the kind of rhythm of the tool and the kind of process of making that, that you have to be focused in exactly in the moment of your, of making these marks. And so the technique of those dots is, is a technique where I use a tool that's shaped like a cone. And when I press the tool into the wood, it spins and it fills up with the oil of the wood and it actually burns the wood as it's taking the material away. And so when you do that repeatedly, what creates the illusion that I like at least is that no dot, none of those dots or holes touch each other. And in order to do that, you have to be extremely focused and an hour can go by. It's also, it also creates a smoke too. So it has its own, it's just a whole vibe kind of. And, and it's a vibe that I really like when I, you know, on days when I'm coming to the studio, if I have to do that a lot, I'm, it's actually really exciting because I know that I'll be zoned in and that I'll, I'll be centered and it's almost like a meditation. And I also arrived at that like through making gouaches too. I used to do little dots and do dots within dots within dots and use like magnifiers to, to get, you know, to be able to see how to do that and like uh, smaller and smaller brushes. And there's something really meditative for me about this kind of mark making. And so 
as as we had discussed also with the stacking, like it was a technique that I enjoyed so much and did a lot for a while that I knew I had to try to retire it or at least try to stay away from it so that it didn't I didn't use it in everything. That that technique is mirrored in all sorts of other textures that I do. They just they just aren't involved as as zoned in as that is that one. So I, there are a lot of techniques where I where I'm just touching the wood over and over and over and over again to create a kind of fuzz or to create little scars or to create little things. And I just, I gravitate towards mark making that insinuates time passing or, you know, that you can kind of, there's just so many marks that they add up and that you kind of feel the care and joy in which the material is touched. It's interesting you say that because that's exactly where I was going. So when I saw those kind of Kusama-esque, at least to me, dot, uh, dottiness, <laughs> if you will. You know, four years later in a work like Octet from 2020, there not only is lots of mark making on the painted surfaces that imply texture, sand blasting or wind blasting might be a better phrase, but there is this giant, I don't know, paddle-shaped object that looks like it's been painted to resemble rattan, as in the seat of a rattan chair. And, and, and that's a move, that kind of rattan-like surface is in a number of sculptures from, from about then. Are you interested in the association with rattan, or am I just seeing an advance of the technique you just described? I think over the last several years, I've been doing a lot of research on the Vienna Werkstatt. And I love design so much. And, and, you know, even though earlier we had talked about, you know, right angles and kind of like this kind of order and the lack of it in my work, I think what I was drawn to about that kind of you're calling rattan, like I is more just to have a kind of superimposition of order over the shapes that aren't so ordered. And I think I think a lot about technology in my work, but maybe like in terms of like a Cronenberg kind of like biotechnology and I think a lot about, you know, how can I give, you know, a piece the illusion of order or machine-like or science or sci-fi. And, and so in order to do that technique, it's the same technique that you were referring to as a kind of Kusama technique. I just do it over a piece of graph paper. And so I, I just, I, it's still actually very organic if you were to really look at it. It's not, it's not made by a machine. It's still done by hand. It's just, I... To me, it's the look of the the pressed sheet metal that goes over like a radiator cover or something like that, which is probably itself mimicking rattan. <laughs> but yeah, like I, it just transforms the wood into another kind of like material in the same way that all the textures kind of take the wood out of its woodiness and bring it into fabric or or flesh. Or it's a lot of like, how can I force wood to look like something else? And so. I, it was just a technique that I used to imply order and kind of industrialization or something. Wild. I love it. <laughs> Matthew Rone, thanks very much. Okay, hopefully that was okay. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs, and footage of black power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights moment. 
El Italia calls this presentation, quote, one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Gordon Parks. On view through April 2023 at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu, the glorious new exhibition, Nubia, Jewels of Ancient Sudan, displays beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that show off the wealth and splendor of Nubian society. Located in present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, the kingdoms of ancient Nubia flourished for nearly 3,000 years. The exhibition features objects from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's collection. You can also discover contemporary artwork inspired by Nubia in Adornment Artifact, a series of sister exhibitions at five sites across L.A. Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Jade Dosko joins me to discuss recent work on view at the John Hartall Gallery at the Cornell University College of Architecture, Art, and Planning. The exhibition is titled A New Wilderness, Fresh Kills. The show features Dosko's work at Fresh Kills and a series of soundscapes by Heather Campanelli. Dosko's work shows the evolution of Staten Island's Fresh Kills from a landfill, the world's largest household garbage dump, think 150 million tons worth, into a 2,200-acre city park. The exhibition is on view through November 4th. Dosko's Fresh Kills work debuted in the New York Times. Black Dog London published a monograph of Dosko's Lost Utopia's work in 2016. Jay Dosko, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. Fresh Kills is a landfill in the process of being made, very much in the process, of being made into a giant city park. What made it interesting to you as, I guess, not just a subject, but a long-term subject? Over the years, I found that I'm very much a tunnel vision artist. And once I get into something, it lasts years and years and years. So my last project lasted about 12 years, overlapping with a 13-year photography of Red Hook, Brooklyn. So I always kind of sink my teeth in for a long time. And Fresh Kills wasn't something that was part of my reality. As many New Yorkers know, if you don't live on Staten Island, it's the borough that's hardest to get to. It is kind of an outlier in terms of many levels of culture and politics. So it wasn't something that was so much in my arena. However, I was teaching a class for the School of Visual Arts on what I described as liminal green spaces in the city. So we were photographing things like roof gardens and community gardens and, and things like that. And Fresh Kills came into my research. So I thought that seems like a perfect place for this class. So the Parks Department picked us up and brought us out to the site. And as soon as I stepped out of their van, I was just flabbergasted because it was just defied any kind of place I'd ever experienced in New York City. It was just these rolling, undulating hills of beautiful meadow grasses punctuated by methane pipes and methane wells. So it was a really, I mean, an otherworldly place. And I immediately felt compelled to set up some meetings with them and and discuss taking on the projects as a serious photography archive. One of the things that I think really distinguishes the work is its engagements with art history, photographic history, and the history of how all American parks from Central Park to Yosemite are constructions. Was there a point in your project process where engaging with those histories 
began to become important to you? Almost as soon as I began this work, all of those histories were in the back of my mind. In fact, I carry several articles and, and documents around with me in my Fresh Kills notebook. And one of the first articles I read that really struck me was in the New York Times Magazine. Oh, I don't have the date on here. My apologies. And it was called The Lost Ones, a number of overlooked mid-century women artists in male-dominated fields, especially land art and minimalism, are at long last getting their day in the museum. And this was because of the upcoming retrospective Agnes Dennis at the Shed. So I started to really think about the topography of the site and also the legacy of American landscape photography and painting, which was all, of course, basically white men. And also the legacy of land artists, which, of course, the best known have long been Robert Smithson, etc. And where we live in the Hudson Valley, uh, we spend a lot of time at Dia Beacon interacting with land art and minimalist works on the weekends. So all of this was kind of in the back of my mind. And then reading this article, just it, it really struck me that, well, sanitation is constructing this new wilderness. But I saw myself as this pioneer photographer woman kind of taking assertion of this new land, photographically speaking. So I'm a history nerd. So, of course, I'm interested in the history of park construction in the United States. Are you and are there places in these pictures where we might see that? I am not as much of a park history nerd. I did grow up with a lot of wilderness around me. So I would say it was just more of an organic interest. <laughs> but that being said, part of what's or I should say a huge part of what's most fascinating about doing this work is seeing the construction of the park. So I'm sure you can speak to this much more than me. And as you know, most of the photographs and documentation often don't speak to the materiality and the actual construction process so much. But that was something that really struck me as I was working. And I came into this fairly late in regards to the Fresh Kills timeline. They stopped collecting garbage in 1996, only to reopen for the Twin Tower tragedy in 2001. And then they started this whole process in 2005. So I started the work in 2018. And the West Mound, the largest mound on the site, was still undergoing the capping process and still being terraformed and transformed very radically from what it was to what it shall be. So the West Mound has really kind of been my main inspiration on many levels because I can see the geo mesh and the wattles and the soil piles they're bringing in, all of this material stuff that is going to be used to create these this park. I think your work at Fresh Kills engages with a whole lot of art history. The work that comes most to mind for me is Jervis McEntee's View in Central Park from 1858 at the New York Historical Society, which is a medium-sized painting of the terraforming of what will become but is not yet because the Olmsted and Vox design has not yet been submitted or won, won a competition terraforming of what will become Central Park. And, 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 and the McEntee is a painting of a mound and grass and rocks and sky. It's a painting of potential. It's a painting of a city's promise in a way. And it's a painting of the messiness of democracy. The process of building Central Park was spectacularly politically contentious. And eventually, of course, ran Frederick Olmsted off the project. But what... What I see in that picture that I see in yours is this reckoning with a certain topographical sameness. And how do you do that in your work in Fresh Kills? Maybe an example or two. 
Certainly. There's a series of images from the East Mound. Again, each mound kind of has its own topographical reality. The East Mound was never filled to capacity, so it's the longest and lowest landform of the mounds. And each of them, because Fresh Kills is the largest landfill to park transformation on the planet, there's ample experimentation to be found per mound. Different kinds of methane wells, different kinds of topographical sculpting. Everything is different on each mound. And so the East Mound was really fascinating because it, it's long and low and then has these kind of smooth hillocks punctuating this long, low mound. And again, very abstract, very, very much felt like this kind of ancient, sacred place in a way. And, and I realized, and that's why this McEntee painting is so fascinating. Photographically, it's actually very, very challenging to show slight undulations in a landform. That's one of the reasons I continue to use large format technical camera, because then you can actually tweak the perspective and angle very carefully to mirror what you're seeing, as opposed to a regular, more compact camera. And so it took actually a couple of years to figure out how to properly show the unnatural landforms in a way that really could strike the viewer. Another one would be North Mound Winter, which is in, in the Fresh Kills or in the exhibition currently at Cornell. I also realized that seasonally, it's very hard to see these landforms clearly because the meadow grasses grow so extensively. In fact, my, my first shoot there, they were probably six or eight feet tall. So it can be really kind of a disembodying experience because you don't know, the scale is really hard to perceive, where you are is hard to perceive. It's, it can be really, really overwhelming. However, a few times a year, sanitation mows the meadows with these huge sanitation tractors. The reason is that these mounds aren't stable enough to support a forest. And if left untended, forests will establish themselves on the mounds and they're at danger of collapsing. So for that reason, several times a year, there's this great mowing and tilling of the mounds, which also reminds me of some of the Impressionist paintings of the hayfields after they've been shorn. It has a similar sensibility to that. Once this great mowing happens, the form of the site becomes much more laid bare. And so I really really value when it snows because then it's kind of this immense sculpting of the mounds and I can actually see how unnatural these landforms are, such as in the McEntee painting. You mentioned North Mound winter a moment ago. That's also one of the pictures of yours that most directly addresses American painting. Why if? Yes, indeed. No, no people lounging, but maybe, maybe in a few years, <laughs> maybe in 50 Well, years. but that in itself kind of fits <laughs> the subject, right? I mean, accepting you, basically, a Fresh Kills is not a people place yet. Not yet, no. And it's a real open-ended question as to when, how, if, and such as with Central Park, there are many, many layers of complicated politics behind Fresh Kills. The other thing about the enforced pastoral of the mowing regime, if you will, is that it, it creates some art historical referencing opportunities for you. The picture of New York City skyline with One World Trade from North Mound, you know, reminds me of a George Ennis, you know, the paintings he made in New Jersey in the second half of his career and how he was reckoning with the horizontal and including on his less distant, if you will, horizon lines, 
signs of suburbanization encroaching upon the pastoral. And in your your picture, it's it's the same but opposite, right? It's 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 the constructed pastoral encroaching upon urbanity. The other history that's in all of these pictures is is that when Frederick Olmsted began working on what will become Central Park and, 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 and as he's making his way through 1850s New York, he lives not far from where Fresh Kills is now. Yes. I actually visited, visited his home. Which I think is a national or state historic site. It is. It needs some repairs. And there it is in the middle of suburban Staten Island. Yes. What, was, what, what is now suburban Staten Island was in the 1850s a place where wealthy and particularly artsy-fartsy wealthy New Yorkers lived in the summer to escape things like cholera epidemics. These pictures are not merely of the outdoors. You include, I don't know, you go a little Paul Shambroom on us a little bit and, and show us indoor administrative spaces and indoor lab spaces and the like. All of which, you know, all of those spaces are necessary to making these, these you know, this, this, this new park. Why was showing the indoor spaces, places we, you know, we average Joes don't think of as being important to park construction. Why was showing those and including those within the project important to you? You know, it's very easy to visit Fresh Kills and be taken away by the birds fluttering about in the trees and the rolling meadow grasses and all of that. And if you are just visiting for a brief time, you can be fooled into thinking that this is a regular naturalistic place. And in this body of work over time, I felt that these specific chapters and themes need to be presented as well within the larger archive. And the systems behind the scene are equally important to what you witness out on the site. When you have a large landfill, there's methane gas that is extracted. So that's what all the methane wells are for. And then there is something called leachate, which is essentially the garbage juice, which goes down into the waterways and then is cleaned and piped away. So many, if not all of these interiors are from the leachate treatment plant. And this is, of course, an integral part of making this place hospitable to flora and fauna. And so I felt that there needs to be an, you know, an alluding to what goes on behind the scenes to make all of this possible. One of my favorite pictures in this series is of a leachate accumulation, shall we say? It's called The New Wilderness Fresh Kills. It's a 2019 picture that both riffs on the way 19th century American painters used reflections in their paintings, a building off of a metaphor Emerson introduced and pointed artists to in his 1836 book-length essay, Nature. So it, it, it does that and, 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 and kind of refers to, to Parks as historically in the United States a democratic project, small-D democratic project. But it also is a picture that riffs on a great 1991 Richard Mizrock of a swimming pool made in the wake of the East Bay fire. It's kind of like that picture, a reference to regeneration and, and degeneration all in all in one picture. It's a picture of an ugly thing made beautiful just as, or, or you know, what we would normally think of as an ugly thing made beautiful just like, just like the Mizrock. You've recently started shooting Fresh Kills in black and white, and there are five such 2022 works in the show. They're interesting for lots of reasons, but first, why did why did you shift into making some work in black and white there? Well, first, just in reference to the New Wilderness photograph. So in the New Wilderness, we see a rusted dumpster, which has these very 
almost violent but beautiful markings of rust and age in the walls of the dumpster. And along the way, I think of this whole project as an inversion of 19th century landscape painting. And this, I think, certainly captures that exactly. We'll have that one on manpodcast.com, of course. (laughs) Great. And after this photograph and also some of the East Mound photographs, and again, my whole process is really slow and just a lot of note taking and spending time on the site and making pictures and figuring out how to get what I'm seeing and perceiving and understanding into a photographic form. So after this photograph, and when I made this one, I thought, God, I don't have to make, I could just have this photograph and nothing else. (laughs) But I kept working and keep working. So this plus the East Mound photographs, I kind of felt like I had maximized how I was understanding the site in color. I just hit a wall and thought, I don't feel there's anything more I can add to the work of color I've, I've created so far. And hadn't really dealt with black and white in probably 15 or 20 years. So it felt very new, actually, to approach the site this way. Also, I spend a lot of time, of course, with Robert Adams' work. Um, I wasn't able to get to his recent exhibition, but I spent a lot of time with the exhibition catalog. And the, the kind of terrible subtlety of his work is always in the back of my mind as well. And I thought, well, there's something there that I think can add another dimension to this Fresh Kills work. Additionally, of course, just, again, this abstract nature of the topography. So if you look at the image, it's black and white and has the east mound with kind of a curve of grass curving from left bottom to right middle. And there's these little tufts. So that, for example, I think shows the abstraction of the topography in a way that I felt really succeeded. And it also made me think about, for example, the Dust Bowl tragedies of the 1930s and how land was just completely mutilated, people's lives destroyed, etc. This kind of barrenness. So I started thinking about that as well, just the sense of human-made barrenness in a landscape. So that was also on my mind when I was creating that photograph, for example. And then... The other black and white works, there's one that's called Waddle slash Suture, kind of thinking about fresh kills as this immense body or organism, because the way the mounds are constructed, there are 150 million tons of New York City household waste that's been brought to fresh kills that creates these mounds. Then on top of that, so that's all underneath. So then there's a soil barrier layer above the waste. Above that is a gas ventilation layer, a drainage layer above that. Then there's some thick plastic barrier protection material, so kind of entombs everything beneath. And then on top of that is soil, and the soil is brought in from other parts of the country. I seem to remember some of the soils brought in from some onion fields in Pennsylvania, their soil brought in for Virginia. So the soil is brought all brought in from other parts of the country. And then the meadow grasses are planted on top of that. So it's really this immense pyramid of waste and then materials and engineering. And then finally, the meadows, which are just there on top. So thinking about how all of that interacted, I wanted to really bring to the fore the materials that are used to create these meadows, which are ultimately going to disappear and dissolve into the grasslands. So again, thinking about fresh kills as kind of this immense organism or body, 
you know, that's why I start to think about this picture of this wattle kind of dissolving into the grasslands, this kind of stitching together of the skin over all of this rotting material. It's interesting you mentioned Bob Adams because the black and white picture is far, far, far more than the color pictures absolutely recall the American West. There is a picture called Riprap Stone Barrier Protection Materials in New Soil, West Mound. That looks like the Nevada desert or or something that an earth artist might engineer. Another picture, one called Untitled West Mound, recalls kind of arroyos and and dry riverbeds and the way they run. And it's it's the black and whites seem to me to really I mean the entire project is national, but but they seem to me like such an address of the American West and a way of nationalizing your body of work within a specific regional park. And then hearing you say that <laughs> that the earth is coming from I mean, you know, the other interesting thing about the earth coming from Pennsylvania is, you know, what are two of the states to which New York City has sent its garbage for years? Yeah. <laughs> New York and Pennsylvania, so. That's right. <laughs> yes, and also I want to add, so yeah, so thinking about the American West also in the sense of openness, Fresh Kills at 2,200 acres is pretty large in regards to New York real estate. And it was almost going to be considered a dark sky park. But of course, when you have Manhattan, Brooklyn, and the New Jersey Industrial Corridor as neighbors, that is not really possible. But that being said, it has this openness and huge sky quality that I've only ever felt in the Southwest or West. And so that is also you know, certainly something that's infusing the photographs. Finally, the show at Cornell includes a collaboration between you and Heather Campanelli, a collaboration that reminds me that the artistic engagement with American landscape isn't merely visual, that songwriters and composers have long elbowed in on what painters and photographers and Emerson started. What is that piece and why was it important to you to make and include it? Experiencing fresh kills is extremely multisensory. You have the smell of anything from the New Jersey Industrial Corridor wafting your way, methane, there's traffic and highways wending around the entire site. So it's uh, the sound really mirrors this deeply natural, unnatural melding that is what the site is about. I also have played piano my entire life and often think in sound as well. So despite being a visual artist, I always am thinking in audio as well. And I did think it was important to somehow translate the soundscapes of the site and to bring that to the to the visuals as well in, in some manner. So Heather actually joined me several times out on the site with field recording equipment, and it was a really great collaboration. And, you know, I think ultimately she she composed three pieces as well as a 20 minute just kind of general ambient soundscape. And the sound pieces do, I think, clearly reflect some of the characteristics of the site. The first under over has this kind of uh, sense of foreboding. And then Heather started thinking about what lies under the mounds and how could she bring that into sound? And so she began finding archived radio jingles and commercials that might represent some of the garbage that lies beneath. And so I thought that was a really fantastic way to kind of bring forth this ominous sense of what lies beneath these beautiful grasslands. 
then her the middle piece is a percussive piece. And in my other project before Lost Utopias, I was looking at World's Fair sites, and and with uh, World's Fairs, of course, there were a lot of jingles and music and all and very avant-garde music. And for example, in the 1958 World's Fair, Edgar Varese and Corbusier created ostensibly the first sound and video installation, which I feel, I wish I could have seen the audience for that. <laughs> but Varese's poem Electronique is very abstract and has these odd sounds and pings and, and percussive noises. And for this middle piece, Heather was banging chains on the dumpsters and just kind of making these abstract percussive sounds with objects she found on site. So I thought that was really an appropriate way to kind of bring forth another sensibility into the work. And then the chorale, as it sounds, is, you know, this, that's the landscape painting of, of, <laughs> of the sound pieces. Jade Dasko, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.